Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With me on Ready Please to Say, joining us in New York to drain some of the drama from the market analysis is Brian Levitt, Oppenheimer Fund's senior investment strategist. Brian, always great to catch up with you. Thank you. I'll give you the scary headline first. The Dow finishes the day down 287. <laughs> and then I'll give you the headline that I think many pros looked at. The S&P 500 softer by four-tenths of 1%. One sells fear, the other is what? Well, I think uh, only small minds are impressed by large numbers. So, um, yeah, the numbers on the Dow do sound scary. It was um, a market that was concerned about trade rhetoric. We see these types of things in the short term. I don't think investors should be trying to make long-term investment decisions based on concerns on what trade policy is going to look like between the United States and China. I understand that we could potentially have a bad outcome here, but I think cooler heads will prevail given how intertwined the two countries are and um, how important reasonable trade deals between the two is for both. Do you just assume that the real tailwinds are stronger here in the American economy than the potential headwinds? I do. I mean, the U.S. economy should actually be pretty strong in the second half of the year. There's a lot of stimulus, so there's a lot of spending coming in. We have the tax cuts, so U.S. growth should be strong. I think the thing that I would focus on is I don't believe that U.S. growth is going to be sustainably stronger. I suspect we're in a um, a longer-term period of modest growth in the United States, and that yeah. could be disrupted, in my opinion, more by uh, tighter Fed policy and or a stronger dollar. Um, and of course, a trade war could lead us to a stronger dollar. But um, I would be more focused as investors on what that stimulus means to Fed policy. And will the Fed see through it that it's more of a sugar rush rather than higher sustained growth for the United States? There was a tweet yesterday by the uh, economist Paul Krugman who yes. said the following, I've been amazed at the complacency of markets as the president marches off to a trade war. Something that continues to amaze me is just how many talented economists offer views on markets that are clearly tainted by their political preferences. <laughs> I mean, how difficult is it to operate in, uh, in 2018 with so much noise and so much analysis, things that are dressed up as analysis, which are, which are clearly just not impartial views on market action? Well, I mean, quite frankly, we're always dealing with that. So if you think in this elongated bull market, we've been dealing with concerns about the breakup of the euro, fiscal cliffs, government shutdowns. So this has been ongoing. I mean, look, make no mistake, if if we get into a massive trade battle with the two, the, in the two worlds, the two largest economies of the world, that's going to be disruptive. But of course, but the reality is the United States has a lot to lose and China has a lot to lose. So I don't think that, um, you know, economists looking at it from the perspective of if we go down this road, then this means that for the markets. What I would be focusing on as investors are where's earnings growth? What does monetary policy look like? Um, and how can we benefit from that type of from an environment where we're still going to be raising rates? I believe gradually corporate earnings look good um, and cooler heads are going to prevail on all of this with with regards to trade wars. We forget the 12 months trailing, for example, S&P 500 up 13.3 percent. 
I mean, I mean it's been a double-digit market, and then recently it's been a churn as we saw the emotion of flat 2018 results. Just as a as an investment 101, do I want to be foreign or do I want to be domestic? Well, let me take the first part first when you talk about how markets have been up over the last year. I can't tell you, Tom, how many times investors asked me, when are we going to get a correction? We, we need a correction. 2017 has been too sanguine. So we took care of some of that in, in February, and we've had some churn lately in markets. But with regards to international investing, um, we had actually had a pretty bad bout in 2015. I would say in some parts of the world, recessionary-like conditions. We had a nice recovery mm -hmm. um, in 2016 into 2017, and you've had some moderation here. And, and the reality is that moderation is movement to a more stable level of growth. Concerns recently about a strengthening dollar, that's really come in over the last handful of weeks. Um, but if you want, if, 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 the, if the central case is, which is my view, is that there's going to be a lot of stimulus in the United States, where does all of that money go? Do, do American consumers increase our savings rates to fund our deficits, or do we consume and foreign investors invest in U.S. Treasuries yeah. to fund our deficits? I believe it's the latter. Last time that happened, 2003, 2004, 2005, that was a great time for international investing particularly the emerging markets. Well, what's the analysis so far? Where is the dividend going? Where's the dividend going? I mean, you've seen um, you've seen share buybacks, you've seen dividends, um, you've seen some investment in the United States uh, through through infrastructure investment or targeted investment, but ultimately that money um, is going to find its way around the world, and that's going to be a nice backdrop, in my opinion, for, for international investing. I, for one, am laser-focused on what is happening in credit. And I think um, if you're in equity, that's where you're going to spot the turn first, what happens in credit. Uh, Marty Fridson, very closely watched yes. in, in the high-yield space, pointing out that the covenant quality of high-yield bonds was the worst level since he started analyzing them um, back in 2011. What does that actually tell you? about where we are in the credit cycle when covenant quality is this bad? Well, it tells you that we're getting later in the cycle, although income coverage ratios for most of these companies look quite good. And you know, you don't see a huge wall of maturity, given that most of these businesses took advantage of low rates and, and pushed out maturities well into the future. So just because... Um, you know, spreads are tight and covenant quality has deteriorated doesn't right. mean that there's going to be disruption. You would need a catalyst for that. That catalyst would have to be severe economic disruption in one of the major economic blocks. Uh, I don't believe that's where we're heading. I actually think the the global economy, short of a, a major trade uh, uh, battle, right. uh, actually looks quite good. If, if we get a stronger dollar, what does that signal? Is that like no big deal to Oppenheimer funds? No, a stronger dollar would be a big deal. I think that's what investors need to be focusing on in all this noise. We're still in a weaker dollar environment over the last year, but we've had a cyclical move higher over the last number of weeks. A stronger dollar to us would signal a return of deflationary forces in the United States uh, and the potential for a recession um, within the next number, within the next handful of years. So I would be very concerned about a stronger dollar. Um, but I suspect if the dollar gets too strong, the Federal Reserve, like they yeah. did in early 2016, will back well, off. Brian Levitt, thank you so much for the Oppenheimer Thank you. Well, Brian, stay around for this. It's too important. I mean, the World Cup, John, is so boring right now that ESPN has a story 
Argentina's Lionel Messi, yeah. quote, suffers and cries in pursuit of World Cup. This according to his mother. Are you not excited about Portugal-Morocco in, I, in 52 minutes' time? Well, I thought you'd be getting no. excited about that, no? What about, Spain, Iran? What about Uruguay, Saudi Arabia? Does that do it for you? It, no. No? What, what do guys like you do on days like this? Do you just on days out? like this, you watch some of the best players in the world <clears> just, <throat> just play openly and freely. I, I, was, I did my Farrell best. Brian, I have to keep John Farrell happy with of me. course of and course so i watched the highlights of senegal <laughs> yesterday you picked one of the worst games to watch the highlights of did you have fun I, I i just did you get through two minutes if i can sit through baseball for hours you can get through two, <laughs> minutes, through two minutes of the highlights seconds. of senegal hey i'm watching training camp new york giants getting ready for I, training I, camp I you're, you're actually workouts. watching training i'm watching camp. the voluntary workouts <laughs> saquon barkley odell beckham oh dma seriously <laughs> Are you watching training camp? No, I'm not watching. Well, we haven't started yet. Voluntary workouts, yeah, I should have they said. Start, the, heat, the heat is oppressive right now. <laughs> okay. I've read it cover to cover so I can tell you the third revolution uh, on Xi Jinping and his new China is a must-read. It's without question shortlisted for Book of the Year in all of economics and international relations from the Council on Foreign Relations. Elizabeth Economy joins us right now. Liz, you had a wonderful chapter on pollution, which is your wheelhouse. We all know that. But what I found amazing is how you identify, as you say in the early part of your book, um, Xi and his team have set out to run the race differently from their predecessors. What do we misjudge in our trade battle with Mr. Xi, given that he's going to do things differently? Well, I think, you know, what we've seen with Xi Jinping is just his enormous concentration of power and the deepening of the party uh, into the uh, Chinese society. And, you know, this suggests that, uh, you know, he's willing, I think, to obviously we've seen he's willing to retaliate. Uh, he's willing to absorb the pain uh, that uh, the President Trump's uh, tariffs are likely to inflict on the Chinese economy um, and to stir up nationalism. Uh, he's, you know, a highly nationalistic leader. Uh, and I think we can. Right. Expect that uh, you know he's he's going to stand firm in this. With the work of you and Jonathan Spence and others, uh, uh, great within China literature, the idea absorb the pain seems to be part of the Chinese uh, experience on this. What's happened in the last twenty four hours, Liz, is the idea that after they go after tit for tat trade and they run out of that optionality, they will go after individual corporations. The absolute no brainer is to go after Apple Computer, right? I think Apple Computer, but also, you know, companies like Starbucks and KFC and Nike. Uh, there are lots of uh, sort of premier U.S. brands, very popular in China, but, you know, they can find substitutes. Uh, and we've seen the Chinese are very capable of uh, boycotts uh, of U.S. products, of, of other countries' products. And I fully expect that's one uh, of the tools that the Chinese government will uh, utilize. Uh, they also can cause a lot of problems for companies uh, doing business in China that manufacture in China, surprise inspections on factories, uh, make it more difficult for companies to repatriate profits, um, you know, basically uh, just making things much more difficult. You know, Starbucks wants to expand in China. It's one of their fastest growing markets. 
they can just stop the approval process uh, for new Starbucks. So I think there are a lot of different tools in the Chinese toolbox. I, I'm not sure that uh, our administration is, is aware that simply because uh, they don't export uh, enough to us to make it painful. I mean, they don't uh, import enough to make it painful uh, for us that uh, somehow they don't have other tools they can use. Liz, Jonathan here. Great to have you with us on the program. Um, they're the buttons that the Chinese can push. Walk me through the buttons that the uh, American administration can push to force the Chinese to ultimately open up. Well, look, I think the tariffs are not the way to go. I mean, this is, you know, President Trump's sort of maximum pressure campaign on the trade front, like we saw with uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And I think, frankly, like we're seeing on the border right now, you know, push and push until something gives. Really what we ought to be doing, and it sounds so, so tired, but it's true, is, you know, working through the WTO, working with our allies. You take Made in China 2025, which is, you know, the Chinese industrial plan to basically uh, control not only China's market in uh, 10 cutting-edge areas of technology, but also globally to develop Chinese champions. We can go through the WTO. We can build a case uh, against China's quota system. There are ways to do this legally, and we should be doing it. Pushing on tariffs is not going to get the Chinese to back down on Made in China 2025, not going to get them to back down on forced technology transfer, uh, not going to get them to back down on subsidies and intellectual property theft. So, you know, those are structural changes uh, that the Chinese, that we have to work within the system uh, to push for. Tariffs are good as a shock value, yeah. get the Chinese to the table to negotiate. Past that, they don't do much. Liz, why haven't previous administrations been successful um, doing what essentially you're saying they should do? Well, I think there's been a sense, um, you know, prior to Xi Jinping, that if the United States and others sort of model best behavior, right, that China's going eventually to follow suit. The Chinese promise and promise, and there was a sense that the Chinese economy was opening up, that it was moving in the direction of other economies. You know, Xi Jinping has upended that understanding, right? He's, you know, pushed to enhance the role of state-owned enterprises, pushed to enhance the role of the party in, in the economy. Uh, and so now it's time uh, to, to, you know, react in different and new ways. And so I'm not opposed to yeah. some elements of reciprocity and things like that. This is a different China. Um, but I think, you know, it's come about because of a new understanding. Uh, we need a new policy. If you're just joining us, Elizabeth Economy with us with the Council on Foreign Relations, her important book, The Third Revolution. It's brilliantly footnoted, uh, Elizabeth, and you've got Enda Curran of Bloomberg News in your footnotes, a Bloomberg Businessweek article from three years ago, state companies back on China's to-do list. What is the state of the state companies in China and can, how will they affect this trade debate? So, again, I think Xi Jinping um, has made it clear, uh, despite some of the optimism that many people in the international community felt uh, back in 2013 when uh, the government unveiled this economic reform agenda that included the idea that uh, they were going to address state-owned enterprises, zombie-failing enterprises. Xi Jinping has made clear, I think, over the past five years uh, that he is all about strengthening the hand of the state. And so, uh, you know, state-owned enterprises are important not only for China at home, right, because they employ a lot of people and, and they you know, take care of infrastructure things at home, but also they are an essential component of China's strategy abroad. Xi Jinping can direct them to go into Africa and Southeast Asia and Latin America, undertake a lot of projects that are basically money, money losing, but also serve broader strategic objectives.
so I think, you know, get the Chinese to build the oh. port in, uh, you know, Sri Lanka, take control of the port and have Chinese well. CLA Navy ships visit. So I think the state-owned enterprises aren't going anywhere. Right. Um, you know, he, he's tried to make a little bit of this sort of mixed enterprises, forcing some private enterprises like Alibaba to take stakes in state-owned enterprises. Right. Um, but, but that's not really going to make much of a difference. Liz Economy, thank you so much. Thank you for the royalty off the Third Re- Revolution. I've been really screaming about this book, folks. She sent me a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken just to, you know, smooth things over. Liz Economy in a really important book on China, my must-read right now, uh, The Third Revolution. Right now in Sintra, Portugal, here is Mario Draghi. The trade unions have disappeared, uh, structural reforms, labor supply has gone up, it's increased a lot, and then non-wage-related aspects, like people wanting more stability rather than higher wages, especially because their employment is of low quality, and then the importance of past inflation. Now, to disentangle all these reasons, it's very difficult. But one conclusion is that we see that all these, the combined effect of all these reasons is gradually washing out, is gradually waning. Uh, A good example is uh, one given by the importance of past low inflation for a long time. Uh, The ECB staffs uh, calculated that uh, low inflation, past low inflation has dragged about 0.2% percent out of wage growth in the last uh, three years per year, 0.2 percent per year. And now we see that this effect is waning out and as as headline inflation is picking up, current headline inflation becomes more and more important and past low inflation is losing importance. And so that's, that's, in a sense, also says that anchoring inflation expectations uh, was crucial and remains crucial and fortunately they were anchored. So, uh, once this is said, uh, we see that nominal wages are indeed increasing. Uh, No matter which measure we take, we take uh, compensation per employee, we take compensation per hour, we take negotiated wages, all of them are going up. And they're going up around now, it's 1.9%, the last data point for uh, for the uh, for the compensation per employee and compensation per hour is the same about the same thing. Well, having said that, um, is this going to be translated into higher inflation? Well, here I think the record is a little more mixed. For example, we had uh, we had an increase in wage growth by 0.8 percent between 2016 and 2018, and this year. But the increase in inflation was only 0.1%, and because productivity gone up by 0.7. Now, what do we expect for productivity? We do expect it will grow less than it has done in the late stage of the cycles, and wages, nominal wages, will grow more than they have done in the in the in up to now. So, all in all, we see the unit labor costs on on an upward path, and. uh, and by the way, the other consideration which was touched in the previous discussion was related to pricing power, the coming back of pricing power. Uh, and there, again, we see encouraging signs because 
If we look at an index which more closely reflects uh, input prices, namely the domestic price, domestic non-food price inflation, in April that's gone up by 0.5%, which is the highest rate since I think the last six, seven years. So all in all, uh, this uh, is, um, is encouraging. Now, what about e-commerce? Is this going to dampen this process of recovering inflation? Uh, and again, the previous discussion about whether a, an increase in concentration does affect the rate of inflation, uh, to some extent, uh, gives some light, some light on, on this issue. Now, the answer that we have is that we find very little evidence that uh, e-commerce e has any effect on, on inflation. Uh, it's uh, clearly has increased price transparency, clear may have some compression of margins, uh, some cost saving, but all in all in the aggregate, this doesn't show into uh, a, a, a permanent lower inflation. So probably the effects of the e-commerce and other aspects of globalization have to do more with the composition of, of industries rather than with an aggregate effect that we, we, don't, we cannot find in the data, an aggregate permanent effect. So all this makes us uh, confident that uh, inflation is converging towards our objective and we draw this confidence by the tighter, the ever tight labor market, uh, by the high capacity utilization rates, by, and frankly, by, and as I will say in a moment, by the continuing ample monetary accommodation, uh, also by the uh, disappearance of what uh, uh, we uh, call the tail risk of deflation. So all this uh, leads us, as led the Governing Council last week, to uh, give guidance on monetary policy. And uh, the first thing is we made, uh, as I said last week in the press conference, we need to make sure that the ample degree of accommodation that is currently incorporated into the financing conditions on which the staff projections are predicated is maintained for as long as necessary in order to bring about the convergence of inflation towards our objective. And then we went through the various measures. We said that we intend to maintain our portfolio of accumulated securities for an extended period of time after the end of net purchases, and in any event, as long as necessary. So, and then we enhanced our guidance on future rate path for our key interest rates. We said that we expect to help them at the present level at least through the summer of 2019, in any case, for as long as necessary to ensure that inflation evolves along a trajectory that is aligned with the sustained adjustment path that we expect to see in the medium term. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. Chairman Powell. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Mario. So nine years into an expansion that has sometimes proceeded slowly, the U.S. economy is now performing very well. Growth is meaningfully above most estimates of its long-term trend, although uh, admittedly that trend is not what we would have hoped it to be. The labor market is particularly robust with uh, unemployment at, at its lowest level since April 2000, and inflation has moved up close to our 2% objective, although we haven't yet seen it uh, remain there on a sustained basis, as our goal would suggest we should do. <clears throat> Today, most Americans who want jobs can find them, and high demand for workers should support wage growth and labor force participation. 
the latter a measure on which the United States now lags most other advanced economies. A tight labor market may also lead businesses to invest more in technology and training, which should support productivity growth. And some groups, such as some uh, racial and ethnic minorities that still have higher unemployment and lower participation rates, could also see increasing benefits from a tight labor market. In short, there's a lot to like about low unemployment. Achieving our statutory goal, though, of maximum employment in a context of price stability and financial stability is both our responsibility and our challenge. Earlier in the expansion, as the economy recovered, the need for highly accommodative monetary policy was clear, but with unemployment low and expected to decline, to decline further, inflation close to our objective and the risks to the outlook balanced, the case for continued gradual increases in the federal funds rate is strong. I'll turn for a minute to uh, current labor market conditions. At 3.8%, uh, the unemployment rate is now below most estimates of its long-run level, which are clustered in the mid-fours. And many other labor market indicators also suggest an economy near full employment. And I'll, I'll name just a couple. Um, uh, one would be an elevated level of job vacancies. So for the first time since the labor market began collecting this data in 2000, there are now more job vacancies than there are people counting, counted as unemployed. In addition, uh, the quits rate is, uh, is elevated, a sign that workers are able to find another job when they seek one. And surveys show that businesses are finding it difficult to fill vacancies and that households perceive jobs as plentiful. A couple of other indicators are, are less clear. Uh, labor force participation among prime age workers has moved up in recent years but remains below its pre-crisis levels. In addition, wage growth has been moderate, which is consistent with low productivity growth, but also an indication that the labor market is not excessively tight. Looking out ahead, the job market seems likely to strengthen further. Real GDP is now reported to have grown two and three quarter percent over the past four quarters, well above estimates of its long-run trend. Expansionary fiscal policy is just arriving and expected to add to aggregate demand over the next few years. So many forecasters expect the unemployment rate to fall into the mid-threes and to remain there for an extended period. If that does come to pass, it will mean the lowest unemployment in the United States since the late 1960s, 50 years ago. Because we have so little experience with very low unemployment, it's interesting to compare today's labor market with that earlier period. Unemployment was below 4% from February 1966 through January 1970, and during that time, PCE inflation increased from below 2% in 1965 to about 5% in 1970. In hindsight, uh, Unemployment is now widely thought to have been unsustainably low and to have contributed to escalating inflation. But the question is, how significant and relevant is that precedent for today? The U.S. economy has changed in many ways over the last 50 years. By some estimates, the natural rate of unemployment is substantially lower now. For example, the Congressional Budget Office now estimates that the natural rate was about five and three quarters percent then and now a full percentage point lower. And rising education levels do point to a decline in the natural rate since the 1960s because more highly educated people are less likely to be unemployed. The share of the population with a college degree has risen from less than 15% to nearly 40% now. And the share with less than a high school degree has declined from 45% to about 5%. Another important uh, difference from the 1960s is that inflation has been low and stable for an extended period, which has better anchored inflation expectations. Today, policymakers have a greater appreciation of the role expectations play in inflation dynamics and a clearer commitment to maintaining low and stable inflation. So 
Unfortunately, with the passage of a half century and important changes in the structure of our economy and its central bank practices, in my view, the historical comparison does not shed as much light as we might have hoped. And that lack of useful historical precedent leaves us with some uncertainty about the answers to several important and challenging questions. First, uh, estimates of the natural rate of unemployment by FOMC participants and others have drifted lower as unemployment has declined without much apparent reaction from inflation. But how, how reliable are these current estimates? Uh, they've always been uncertain, and they may be even more so now as inflation has become less responsive to unemployment. The anchoring of, of expectations is a welcome development, has likely played a role in the flattening of the Phillips curve. But a flatter Phillips curve makes it harder to assess whether movements in inflation reflect the cyclical position of the economy or other influences. Second question, uh, what would be the consequences for, for inflation if employment were to run well below the natural rate for an extended period? <clears throat> the flat Phillips curve suggests that the implications for inflation might not be large, although a very tight labor market could lead to larger nonlinear effects. Research on that question is ambiguous, again, reflecting the limited historical experience. We should also remember that, remember that where inflation expectations are well anchored, it's likely because central banks have kept inflation under control. If central banks were instead to try to exploit the non-responsiveness of inflation to low unemployment and push resource utilization significantly and persistently past sustainable levels, the public might begin to question whether our commitment to low inflation continues and expectations could come under upward pressure. Of course, so far we see no signs of this at all. If anything, some measures of longer-term uh, inflation expectations in the United States have edged lower in recent years. Third question, can persistently strong economic conditions uh, pose financial stability risks? Of course, strong economic conditions are a good thing. Uh, such conditions can make the financial system better able to absorb shocks through strong balance sheets and investor confidence. But we've often seen confidence turn into overconfidence and lead to excessive borrowing and risk-taking, leaving the financial system more vulnerable. Indeed, the fact that the two most recent U.S. recessions stemmed principally from financial imbalances and not from high inflation highlights the importance of closely monitoring financial conditions. Today, I see U.S. Financial, financial stability vulnerabilities as in line with their long-run averages. While some asset prices are high by historical standards, I don't see broad signs of excessive borrowing or leverage. In addition, banks have far greater levels of capital and liquidity than before the crisis. Fourth, while persistently strong economic conditions can pose risks to inflation and perhaps financial stability, we can also, also ask whether there may be lasting benefits. As I mentioned at the beginning, a tight labor market could draw more people into the labor force. In fact, as the labor market has tightened, more workers have been moving back to work and off disability roles. That could also, there could also be benefits to productivity and potential growth. All told, told, though, the persistence of any such positive hysteresis benefits is uncertain since, again, the historical evidence is sparse and inconclusive. So to wrap up, uh, as is often the case, in the current environment, significant uncertainty attends the process of monetary policy. So today, with the economy strong and risks to the outlook balanced, the case for continued gradual increases in the federal funds rate remains strong and is broadly supported among FOMC participants. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.